This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. On this episode, we talk with Catherine Lim and Jennifer Chang. Catherine is a UX researcher at 98.6, and Jennifer Chang is a UX lead product designer at Acuvia. Catherine and Jen each talk about their journey to design, their shared critical lens of the design discipline, and their resistance to participating in the traditional pipeline of design school to commercial industry. They also discuss how this critical lens, along with a funding opportunity, and hearing an interview by an undocumented immigration activist led to the motivation of Archivo, a self-documentation toolkit created in partnership with Maru and local community partners to provide a guide for undocumented people to collect and organize documents that can help prove their continued presence in the U.S. Catherine Lim and Jennifer Chang, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Um, you know, we've been trying to have you on for a while, so it's really great to finally have you in a virtual room together. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So um, I wanted to get start off by asking each of you um, about how you found design and kind of your journey to where you are now. And then maybe later on in the conversation, we can talk about some of the work um, you each do and some of the work you've done together. So Catherine, um, how did you find design? Uh, so I studied um, urban studies and visual studies in undergrad, and in the in that that those both of those degrees are very uh, interdisciplinary. Um, but in my visual studies um, classes, uh, I did choose to focus on digital media design and uh, did some animation and film. And then I didn't end up working in design after that, um, but worked in nonprofits in community economic development, um, mostly in immigrant communities and low-income neighborhoods. Uh, and if you don't know much about community development, um, most of those organizations uh, work directly with communities uh, in neighborhood planning and building affordable housing. Um, sometimes maintaining that affordable housing and then providing any wraparound services that the community members might need. Mm -hmm. So uh, I did that work for a while and kind of moved around the country and ended up in Oakland, California, where I ran into some designers who were working with the Alameda County and the city of Oakland. And that's where I kind of ran into design being used in a way that I hadn't encountered before, um, where uh, designers were helping to engage people in a different way through human-centered design. And so that's where I started getting more interested in what design can be beyond just designing for advertisements, which is what I kind of had thought it was li limited to uh, earlier on. And that's how I sort of ended up coming back for grad school at UW because I was interested in um, design as uh, a method for engagement and a method to um, a method to the madness, which are 
very hard problems to solve. Um, and that's what inspired me to get back into design and um, pursue a graduate degree. That's really interesting. When you decided to go back to grad school, what what sort of things and programs were you looking for? Yeah, I um, applied to five different programs across the country. I was looking at programs that were stronger on design research, um, so had an emphasis on that. I was sort of less interested in some of the programs that focus on like design for business and I did want to get as much as I wanted a graduate degree where I could dig into something deep I also wanted to like polish my studio skills um, and learn the craft more so that was one of the things that I really looked for and I uh, it was like one of the criteria that maybe not everyone has to think about was that I didn't want to end up with a lot of debt afterwards because most of the work that does interest me tends to not pay as much, um, like if you're working in nonprofits or government. Um, and so I didn't want uh, any debt to decide how my path would move forward. And so that, yeah, that was definitely a criteria. No, I think it makes sense. A lot of people don't think of, um, you know, the allure of the golden handcuffs. Jen, I'm wondering what it, what was your career path and how did you get into design? Yeah, so I um, graduated from the University of Washington where I met Catherine, where I was doing my undergraduate while she was doing her graduate degree. Um, in, uh, I graduated in 2015, but we must have met in 2013 or something like that. Yeah. In high school, was really interested in like fine arts, photography, and art history. Um, and so I was really, really interested with uh, artists like Jenny Holzer and Barbara Kruger, um, some photographers like uh, Hiroshi Sugimoto and Andreas Gursky, and kind of all of uh, a lot of the themes of the, the art and kind of and photography was um, kind of confrontational um, uh, work that deals with like gender and identity and society so very like I really was struck by Jenny Holzer's work um, and I read a lot of her writing that kind of accompanied that and at the same time of um, my interest in art and photography and art history I was also spending a lot of time um, working on high school publications, which I think is a very common um, background for people who get into design. Uh, oh, yeah. And yeah, so I, I, I was like editor for many years for the yearbook and the newspaper and did photography for them as well. Um, and going into college, I knew that I wanted to find somewhere with a strong design program, um, intending to end up in print design. Um, which was what I planned on, but ended up at the UW um, Division of Design and found um, interaction design to be really interesting and, and like and challenging. Um, not that visual design and graphic design isn't, but uh, just kind of, I think, tied in some of my interests from art and art history theory that I had, yeah, was able to tie it all together. Um, so 
that's basically how I got in design. I think a fairly simple, <laughs> straightforward story of knowing that I wanted to continue learning um, and do have a formal education in it. And yeah, so I've been working as a UX designer uh, since 2015. Yeah. Well, and that kind of gets us to the point of one of the reasons why I wanted to have the two of you on the podcast together um, was talk about some of the work that started when you were each in school together. And I know during that time, um, I mean, Jen, I remember in school, you had a very critical kind of lens on the world and the practice, as did you, Catherine. But I think the difference is, is you kind of took that and actually were motivated to do something with it. What was the spark in that work? How did it get started? Well, A, what was it? And then like, how did it come about? And um, how did you go about doing it? I think actually the entire thing originated because there was a funding opportunity, um, one of maybe three or four that we actually ended up applying to, um, where there was a funding opportunity and um, Jen and another undergrad um, student approached me and asked if, you know, if I was interested in partnering with them to apply. Um, I knew a little bit about the academic community that um, the opportunity was with. It was um, with, I believe it was with Kai, which is the Computer Human Interaction Conference. Um, and um, we didn't end up applying to it, but at that time we started this conversation. And um, one thing I would do in graduate school, uh, which I don't, which I still kind of do actually, um, is that sometimes when I would get really tired, uh, you know, school, there were long days, um, I would listen to things that would infuriate me. Um, so mostly like news podcasts um, that covered like injustices around the world that would get me riled up because it, like at that point in the night, like the coffee would stop working and you know, you can only drink so much coffee uh, mm -hmm. before your stomach starts hurting. Yeah. So that was one of my strategies for keeping myself alert um, and continuing was listening to democracy now. And I'd listened to this interview with um, a local activist named Marumora Villapando. And um, she was on with her daughter. And she's an undocumented activist. Um, she's very well known and networked within uh, the local undocumented activist community here um, and plugged into some of the local politics. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. I just heard this interview and um, with her daughter and I was like crying. Um, and I remember we started this conversation and um, I had mentioned this need that the, um, in the interview that Maru had communicated. Um, and so that was where we started brainstorming. And I like sent a cold email to Maru and we went down to Burien and sat down with her and talked about what are some, what were some of the things that she was seeing in these workshops that she was running um, for immigrant rights. What was that initial need that you had identified? Um, so she was running these workshops and one of the needs she talked about was um, that when applicants who are eligible for the DACA and DAPA program um, 
were planning to apply, they didn't have the necessary paperwork to apply, um, and that was making them ineligible. So, in in applying to those programs, which um, if you don't know about DACA, um, it's not it's not a legal status. Um, it's just um, a sort of temporary work permit that allows you to um, work legally in the country and study if you're a student. Um, and it's intended for um, uh, undocumented immigrants who might have come when they were very young um, and didn't make the choice but came with their parents. Um, and this is the only country and community they've known. Um, and so at the time, the DACA program had been around and they were trying to introduce um, a new one called DAPA. And um, same problem there where uh, people who wanted to apply were not able to get paperwork together. And there were um, legal scams happening um, where uh, people who are immigration lawyers were basically charging extra to help people put paperwork together, um, even if they weren't eligible. And so, yeah, there's always gonna be bad actors taking advantage of people in need. Um, and so that was one of the areas that she had identified and, and really Maru had this idea of like, I would like this binder that's very organized. Um, and that's where we kind of came in and, and talked about some of those ideas. Hmm. Uh, I think that starting with um, Maru's project that she had in mind, you know, was a really good starting place for us. And um, especially given the, um, the like limitations in what we knew, you know, I would think it was much better for us to kind of have a conversation, really just listen and see where we could go from there. And yeah, to speak a little bit more about the project itself, um, right? Like that the need was identified not just for um, DACA and DAPA, but um, for, you know, essentially all, all people who might face deportation or any sort of legal um, like engagement with the, with the state where, you know, the, there's all sorts of unreasonable obstacles and burdens that are put upon people to essentially track 365 days or more, um, you know, parts of your life, like uh, school enrollment, um, utilities, your location and residence, and all sorts of like unreasonable, <laughs> um, like documentation that people need to keep track of. I mean, it's similar to like the way that many other uh, agencies um, work in this country, like insurance, et cetera, right? But, you know, we were hearing stories from her of people getting charged for, you know, bringing a pile of papers rather than having it already organized and getting charged many fees <laughs> for just even having an appointment, not having like, not seeming like well prepared enough or professional enough. So just a couple notes on like why, like how this came to be um, from my perspective and what I remember, it was a few years ago. So there's some yeah. things that are a little fuzzy, but you know, I think one of the, the things that Catherine and I came together uh, through and bonded because of was 
seeing some of the limitations in design school. Uh, I think you <laughs> mentioned this chat. I was very, I think, angry. <laughs> well, I was very confrontational <laughs> in design school, always like trying to dig at really like what was the purpose of us um, learning these skills, right? Because to me, it seemed like there was a very clear kind of pipeline from, you know, this university program to, you know, the, the top five big companies, right? Where, you know, the, the incentive for a lot of students, especially as undergrads, was to end up in like a high paying tech job. And I think I found a lot of reservations um, with that. And the, there was, I could, I found like a lack of willingness of my peers, at least to push back a little bit. So definitely gravitated towards some of the conversations that um, Catherine and I were having about like, what, what is the, like, what is design and like, how does it apply to something more than um, kind of like a, for me and my like peers in the undergraduate um, program, like a, just a, a clear path to working at Microsoft or Amazon. Um, and so working on side projects was a really good outlet to kind of broaden um, how we could apply design. And I think it was, it was good to like take the time outside of uh, just schoolwork and think about something a little bit bigger. Our professors in various classes did push us to think about um, the impact of our work and really challenge us to learn about um, different ways to apply design. So. Yeah, I feel like I missed mentioning that this was not part of our coursework. Uh, definitely wasn't part of my thesis work. Yeah, I was just going to ask um, Yeah, it was all kind of a passion project that we did, you know, and made time for outside of all of the other obligations we had because it was exciting. And I think um, I had already worked for about six years in community development. And so was used to being plugged into a bigger community. And when I moved into, when I moved to Seattle for graduate school, I felt very disconnected and I don't know, being in school is kind of insulating because you're in this um, protected community um, and yeah, the university community is there, but it's, it feels very, um, insulated. And so this was also, I think I was hungry for, um, just getting in touch with, uh, a community outside of that. Um, so I think that was also part of what, um, what Jen was saying, what bonded us. It's interesting to hear the two different types of perspectives of graduate and undergraduate, but both having the same sort of like drive or initiative of wanting to use design for change, uh, wanting to do some type of design that uh, fed back to the community. Um, Jennifer, you had kind of talked about this as something that was out of the norm for your peers. Catherine, I'm wondering if uh, you found us a, a similar approach that people were coming to grad school because they saw this trajectory of this degree equals this job that equals this salary. Do, do you see that not just with your peers, but uh, people in general that, that this is a trajectory that they're on? I would say that in our graduate studies, this question of how we can push the field 
beyond, you know, what industry calls for uh, was more of an open question. And um, we had lots of discussions on it and a seminar kind of focused on what is the social impact of design? Like, how do we take responsibility? What are the ethics behind it? I think it, it was maybe more of an open question and less of an expectation. Um, that being said, I do feel like most of our classmates probably did go down the path of working for the tax sector. But I think part of why it was an open question is that some people did come to grad school to be able to teach. Um, I think when you start questioning, like, how do you prepare the next designers? Like, you just naturally have those questions more open of like, how do you shape, how do you shape different paths that these younger designers can take? Yeah, I think it was also like a big question of what, what is needed in the world right now <laughs> to some degree. And I feel like if we would have been having those conversations today rather than then, like they would have been different. Looking at your way into this project, it seems almost different than a way a project would have been taught in school. Like, because I feel like in design school, we're often taught a lot about problem seeking, right? And how to define the problem versus here, like you're actually working in the real world. What, what did you learn from that process? Did it feel different or did it come pretty naturally? Yeah, I, I do think um, we benefit a, uh, benefited a lot from listening. Um, I think it is it relates to some of the some of the reading that we had done together. <laughs> um, I remember reading Victor Papanek's um, uh, book about like design for social change and stuff like that. And from that, I really think I really learned to not just kind of presume things about communities that we might be working with and make assumptions in our designs um, kind of right off the bat. Yeah, I think the example I was thinking of to contrast um, the way that our project went about was there's like a short two-day design sprint that um, some external like guest speakers came to UW to uh, kind of do a guest that workshop and the workshop was like how would you solve homelessness or some very like big broad challenge um, that was like okay go do research for like half a day we went up and down the Ave and you know one of the things that has really like shaped my like perspective of the, the way things are in this city in this country are like is the homeless population in Seattle You know, Seattle has one of the highest um, rates of homelessness per capita um, in, in the country. And I think, you know, knowing what I knew about that and then contrasting it with, um, you know, this really quick, rapid design sprint to solve homelessness, I, I, I really saw kind of the, um, the lack of thoroughness that was, that can be brought about in um, even conversations about design for good or design for change. Um, it can be somewhat hasty and you take some of like the way that design works in tech to something like design for um, good or design for change and it really doesn't apply. Um, so I think just, yeah, the 
the Archivo project was a really good opportunity to apply some of the things that we had been thinking about and talking about um, into practice. So maybe now's a good time to talk about what the end result was. So what was the final outcome? Um, yeah, the project that we worked on together was called Archivo, um, and we called it a self-documentation toolkit because it was essentially a set of tools for undocumented immigrants to use um, in collecting copies of their of paperwork that would essentially prove their residency, continued residency in the U.S. for five, seven, nine, however many years that they would need to prove. It was a really a way for them to know which documents to collect, keep an inventory of those documents, and uh, keep them organized and separated in file folders by year. What we ended up with were about 2,000 kits with uh, like a file folder box, um, several folders, uh, an informational pamphlet that was in both English and Spanish, um, and some additional uh, resources to make the process of uh, collecting and filing documents easier. And we were funded by SAPI, uh, a paper company called SAPI International, I think. Um, and one of the uh, stipulations of the grant were to use like a certain dollar amount of paper um, from their company. And so we had these really beautiful informational booklets that we designed and that we distributed them with the nonprofit through, uh, I think, about a dozen workshops. Um, so it was an additional factor or like an additional component to the already existing immigrant rights workshops that Maru was doing. And so how did it turn out? So we did have to, while we were working on the kids, we did have to make changes um, because in the middle of it, uh, we got elected a new president who um, isn't, uh, is a little more hostile towards immigrants in general. And um had uh, put the DACA program on hold. Um, that seems like so long ago. Uh, but essentially, um, because the program had changed and some of the requirements on the program changed, we ended up changing some of the information that gets put in um, while we were distributing. Um, so things were happening really quickly. Um, and the hard thing about doing a print project like this where you essentially have a tangible object you don't you can't really track where it goes in the world um so the feedback that we've been able to get has been through our community partner um through maru and um some of the anecdotes that she shared with us um she's used the kit herself for her own uh case against um her own deportation um, and has gotten um, comments from her lawyers of where did you get this case? Can we make more of them? Because this is the most organized thing that we've seen someone come with. Uh, that's kind of the only um, feedback that we've been able to get um, after distribution. I guess I'll add that this was just, you know, one project that we did with 
um, uh, La Resistencia, which is the organization that Maru works with. And that group still does work every day to try to put pressure on releasing uh, immigrants who are in this jail, essentially. It's a private prison. Um, trying to put pressure on them to release people who are at high risk um, for COVID uh, because the pandemic did reach um, the Northwest Detention Center. The Human Rights at UW just came out with a report that the center holds more people in uh, solitary confinement than any other immigration jail in the country. I think the issue of undocumented immigration and the detention and deportation of undocumented immigrants wasn't as in the spotlight during the Obama administration and became more in the spotlight in the time of Donald Trump and separating children, um, but that it, it's been a problem for so long. So I think uh, one of the important things to note is that, you know, these groups are still doing really important work way beyond this one project we worked with. I think that's one of the hard things about doing projects like this, right? Is as soon as you go into a community to do it well, to be ingrained in that community also means when is the opportune time to step out? And um, that's hard. And in this case, right, you were working with a grant that had a certain amount of funding. And it's not that that funding was for you. It was funding to actually produce the materials that were part of the intervention to actually help change. In the end, like, you know, the kits you made were beautiful, right? But the value was in the information being presented and grouped together in a way that could technically be made without it being done by a professional printer, right? Yeah, and we did put everything online. And so we still have the resources there that the various organizations that we were in contact with could presumably have printed over the years, but um, we we don't really know because we didn't necessarily um, open some, some of those channels of communication uh, because uh, we we're just, I think, pretty busy at the time, focused on some of the more local efforts. But yeah, we did send um, uh, the, like a hand and a number of kits and the online resources to uh, kind of the partner organizations across the country. Um, and yeah, I think that was, it was both, um, I think some of the limitations of the grant kind of having, you know, a start and end to it that didn't necessarily give us a kind of a natural, um, what do we do next and where do we go from here? Um, as well as, you know, Catherine was finishing her thesis. I was, I think, working <laughs> um, it, as a full-time designer. And I think we did kind of get a little burned out towards the end because there was a lot of, um, you know, physically packing 2000 kits, <laughs> just, uh, packing them up, shipping them, driving them all around the state. Um, it was a uh, good learning experience. Um. I think though to Chad's point about the the relationship kind of continued um, but the actual like producing these Archivo kits and distributing them that was a moment and we could only produce and distribute a finite number of kits depending on how much funding we had and I think when we had that funding and we realized, oh, we're spending probably about $10 per kit to produce these, 
could we have done this in a more economic way? Um, and we questioned that. We questioned whether... Reduce the cost per piece. Reduce the cost per piece, but reducing the cost per piece, which they were already not, you know, the printing costs and stuff like that, we try to reduce as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the points that, one of the things that we learned from Madhu and one of the points that she made um, was that uh, making these was like having a gift that they could give out at, at these workshops that were tangible. And because they were tangible, they could point at some of these skills, like here's how you would organize the paperwork and here's how you can think about um, keeping an inventory and keeping documents separated. Um, and they could add on to that kit by going out to, you know, some uh, office supply store and getting more file folders and getting additional papers where they could keep these records and keep it going. Uh, but what the kit represented was a, a set of skills for compiling these papers um, and what would be needed when they, if they do encounter these um, legal processes that they might have to at some point in their lives. I'm curious, you had just used the phrase that these kits represent legal representations, legal documentations, but I'm wondering what what do these represent for the two of you in your uh, design career trajectory? Um, Yeah, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that embedded in the community, um, you know, I think to really do that and really make an impact in that way as, as designers who are not um, in that community, like would take a lot more time, effort, and, um, you know, the list goes on. Um, but I, I think what we did do was we really listened, provided, um, provided resources and um, our expertise as designers and kind of leave it at, at that. And I'm not, not saying that we didn't do, you know, a ton and that we did some work really embedded in um, this community that isn't ours. And for me, um, from listening, um, that was one of the biggest things that I got out of the project was having a, you know, a, a, a very, a much more thorough understanding of um, what the realities in the, in this country are for undocumented immigrants. Um, you know, we learned from the community workshops really that Obama is no, no, really no better than, than Trump um, when it comes to um, immigration policy. Right. Um, and this is what we learned from these workshops, but yeah, I think, understanding that even the Democrats are just as complicit in, you know, oppressing people in this country was something that it's unfortunate that it took hearing this from an undocumented activist. This uh, has impacted my like work um, as a designer in understanding like our complicity in, in some of these issues. Um, uh, in the last few years, there's been a lot of uh, designers and other tech uh, workers who have been organizing um, in some with similar goals of pushing back against institutions like ICE um, and the, the Department of Defense. So to kind of tie the work of, of people in 
the detention center to um, some additional kind of worker collective actions are so understanding the way that tech and thus you know my role as a designer is tied to these you know very important issues of immigration So my last question to each of you is um, what are you going to take with you? I mean, thinking for, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but um, when you think about even walking away from this conversation and the work you want to continue doing in the future, how you go about doing work, what are the summarized key summary learnings that maybe somebody who is inspired by this conversation and this work might want to think about when finding a partner or an opportunity to make change? Um, Yeah, I feel like it goes back to how this project all started, which is if there is um, an issue, if there's an issue that you feel really passionate about um like you can just send a cold email to someone to start a conversation and potentially start a relationship it's not always going to end up that way but i think we lucked out um in finding someone like maru and learning from her um and it only takes that you know first contact to establish that relationship um, and find someone who is so rooted in community um, to find your own bearings. Like how, how to even be engaged in the first place. Yeah, I don't know. That's my, I, I think mm-hmm. I, like I like that, that way of working wasn't super new to me just because of my background in community development and that's how we did all of our work. Um, but I, that was this was the first project where I did that where we kind of did that as individuals um, and so I think there's tons to do um, there's no shortage of uh, of work that you could do to whatever you're passionate about um, and it's just about sort of making that first step Jen how about you yeah I think my key takeaways from this were um i don't know a couple things like how um how frustrating it is that you know work that can can make a really meaningful impact um is often done you know as a passion project into the the late hours of the nights and weekends right where um, in our, you know, our day jobs are often, uh, speaking for myself, I currently work for like a large uh, healthcare data company where most of our um, clients are pharmaceutical companies. So definitely not the factions of good in this world. Um, but, you know, um, it, it is something that most designers, I think, can benefit from. Um, by stepping out of their comfort zones um, and engaging with different types of people. Um, And I would really recommend doing that. And 
Um, but in doing so, I would really recommend people take time to have like a deep understanding of, you know, political work, organizing work that is being done in the community that has been going on for years, decades even. And, um, you know, understanding where design can fit in to a certain struggle or um, project before kind of just jumping into something and saying, I want to do something right now and doing it. Um, I think there are exceptions to that, of course, but I think something that, you know, I think the average person in the United States doesn't have is like a, a, a really thorough understanding of history and of the way that um, you know things are <laughs> and that's designers aren't excused from that um, and yeah I think all another thing is working on print <laughs> just to tie it all back up to the beginning of the conversation is really awesome and so much more fun <laughs> than designing for um, digital <laughs> products I will say and like I think about that and really enjoyed that part of it as far as like the design design part you know um we got to go check out the printing press we got to go do a bunch of things and all of that was great uh that's a, like a more lighthearted takeaway i think i went on uh about the political nature of this little bit um much but yeah world lots of, of good tactility <laughs> i know it's awesome the paper was fancy and it's very nice to touch yeah yeah i liked i liked jen's answer better about finding uh, a community that's already doing a lot of the work and kind of plugging in rather than thinking like oh i'm gonna solve this problem yeah that that there's probably a community doing the work already and it's really about finding who they are and and um, plugging in yeah yeah and really you know if there's a problem that really gets you fired up um there's gonna be a, a very like long reason why and like get into the history get into really the root of the issues and then go from there i think i would just encourage myself you know it, like speaking to myself in the past you know take time to really dig at the root of why you know people are getting um, deported at like historical rates right like take a like a deeper look at why the immigration system is so cruel you know and that is something that I wish I had a deeper understanding going into the project where I didn't have to learn all of these things from you know the people in this organization from our partner Maru right like it's um, it's something that I wish I had like not expected to learn, um, even though that it, it, that is what happened. Um, and so that would be my, yeah, another takeaway. <laughs> As we come to the end of our time here, one thing we like to do um, to end the podcast is um, what JP, JP likes to call a recommendation list. Um, so one thing I like to ask about is um, reading and listening. Um, 
So I was curious if there was something that each of you had read or listened to or even watched lately that you felt made an impact on you in the way that you thought or, you know, something like that, um, that you feel like hasn't gotten enough play yet. I, uh, in hopes that I don't feel entirely like a broken record, um, I just finished a book called Washington Bullets. Um, I know that is a song title, but it is, uh, it's a book by um, Vijay Prashad, and it's uh, a pretty good readable overview of the United States and its interventions um, abroad um, through coups and assassinations in order to kind of exert whatever, um, you know, quote unquote democracy that the United States has. And I think it ties into a lot of the lessons that I learned um, about the political nature of the work um, that La, Resist La Resistencia is doing. Um, and then music wise, um, I really like this album called uh, there but for fortune by phil oaks um and that is what i would recommend <laughs> thanks Catherine. i have some podcast recommendations um, oh really <laughs> beyond this one of course yeah no, I'm, just, I'm joking <laughs> um I, yeah, I would say um, kind of unrelated to this topic um, because, you know, sometimes after reading way too much news and wanting to go on a news diet um, because it's just depressing, uh, I like to kind of listen or um, read about things that are um, about the natural environment. Um, or just learn something about, um, I don't know, something in the sciences. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts right now is Ologies. Um, their tagline is Ask Smart People's Dumb Questions or something like that. Um, and so they, uh, the host, Ali Ward, interviews um, different scientists or different ologists, um, people kind of like focus on very specific topics um and yeah that's a really fun one just to have a little bit of an escape from the doom scrolling speaking of doom scrolling the last recommendation i'll ask for um on behalf of jp is um we're in the midst of a pandemic right now um, which will likely still be ongoing by the time this gets published. Don't want to think about that right now. But, um, you know, the last nine months have been interesting for us. So I'm curious, what strategies have you used to, um, I don't want to use the word cope, but I'm going to use the word cope. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I go <laughs> for a lot of runs. And I... I'm trying to learn how to cook, <laughs> but it's not going very well. Um, I'm, I moved from a one bedroom apartment into a house with five people, so that has helped tremendously. <laughs> How about you, Catherine? 
Um, my coping strategy has been to spend as much time outside as possible, even if it um, results in me being soaked to the bone. Um, and the on these winter days, um, and yeah, part of that has been going mushroom hunting and fly fishing and learning all about our ecosystems here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it's kind of just like a meditative learning uh, to think about a system where we're royally messing it up, but a system where like everything seems to kind of make sense and relationships seem to make sense. Um, yeah, so that's been my coping strategy. Jennifer and Catherine, thank you so much for joining and, you know, uh, giving us your thought and time. And thank you so much for the work that you've done in the past um, and contributions you've made. Um, it's been wonderful talking with you and learning more about um, this work. So thank you. Thank you, Chad. And JP, yeah, it was nice to speak with you both. Yeah, thank you. It was nice to have a moment to also reflect on our work because um, it's been a little, it's been a minute. Um, so it's always nice to kind of reflect and have this conversation to do that. Yeah, thanks. This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at TIDS Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. Bye for now.